Series of Dots, a podcast that discusses all things flash fiction with the people that write it from Ellipsis C. Hi everybody, I'm Steve Campbell, editor of Ellipsis Scene, and you're listening to the first full episode of A Series of Dots. Today I'm talking with writer Nick Black about his debut collection, Positive and Negative. Nick manages two suburban libraries in London, and his writing has been published in numerous lit mags, including Trampset, OK Donkey, Spelk, Lost Balloon and Jellyfish Review. Alongside our interview, Nick will be reading Lottie's Husband Out of His Skin, and I am what I am. Hi, Nick. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Hi, Steve. Before we discuss your collection, I wanted to get an idea of how and when you got into writing, and more specifically, writing flash fiction. I've been writing generally since I was a kid, although less and less as I got older. About oof, longer ago than I'd probably want to mention, I was standing in the Sainsbury's in Watford, flicking through some magazines. GQ magazine had a short story competition. So I thought, okay, I'll try and write something for that. And at that point, I was probably only writing about one story a year, mm-hmm. just to share with friends. I really wasn't writing terribly much at all. So I knocked something together. I think that the theme was cities or urban settings, something like that. Okay. So I wrote a piece called Broccoli Hill, and I sent it off. It got shortlisted and published in a little booklet that was put in boutique hotels. So that was quite gratifying. And then another year went by (laughs) in which I hadn't written a thing, and I saw another competition advertised somewhere. This was the Spread the Word Prize, which was a London-wide competition. And I wrote my story for the year and sent it off. again. It was shortlisted. Wow, okay. Yeah, that was, that was great. And yeah. I was invited to a launch because it was going to get published along with the other listed stories. Everyone was milling around, chatting to each other, picking up writing tips off each other. And I was talking to people who were asking me my writing routines and you know any tips and everything. And I was deeply ashamed of the fact that I wasn't getting up at the crack of dawn like they all were to get there two hours in before work or whatever. And I just somewhat lazily and luckily had hit gold with my annual story. So Mm. I realized at that point that I probably ought to start taking this a little more seriously. Right, okay. So did that impact on your routine? Do you sort of have more of a routine now? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I still don't get up before work to write. Um, I I write when I write, and often Mm. that won't be for quite honestly, months on end. Uh, I mean, I, I write all the time, you know, I'm, I'm chatting to people or whatever, and I'm liking certain lines that I might be writing to people in emails and think, well, I'll use that. Mm. But I really don't have a good routine. I'm horribly undisciplined. Yeah. So I suppose if you hadn't have happened across those prompts at that time, the, the, those pieces wouldn't have been written. Certainly with those two stories, yeah, they were dragged out of me. Others have sort of been push from behind, as it were, rather than mm. pulled from the front, but right. definitely. So where do you get ideas from? And you mentioned, obviously, sort of lines from emails and, and things like that. Do you have prompts that you use? It might be mishearing conversation, lines of dialogue. Sometimes I might use picture prompts occasionally. Right. Um, I tried encouraging a friend of mine to write more, so we were using picture prompts 
to just try writing a hundred words or so a day and did it for about a fortnight, but I did get two or three pieces out of it that I quite like. They work. I just, as I said, I'm horribly undisciplined. So that lasted for a whole fortnight. Sometimes it might be a competition. To be honest, I enter that many competitions, but if there is a theme, I'll try and write for that. A story might come because I'm trying to work something out, if that makes sense. Just something that's on my mind. And I think, how can I make sense of this? And that might end up as a story. So do you find yourself using much of your own experiences in your writing? Some of my stories are wholly abstracted from my life. I would say probably half and half. Yeah. There might be some element of my life in varying degrees. There's a story in my collection called Fashions, which is about a kid being chased by skinheads. And that did happen to me when I was a kid. But in the story, I'm wearing a blue velvet jacket and I didn't walk the streets in blue velvet jackets as a child. There's another story in my collection called Toe of Toe Hall, the title of which my wife came up with and I thought, well, I have to use that. When I was six, I leapt out of bed and smacked my foot on a railing on the side of my bed and one of my toes started curling under my foot. So Toe of Toe Hall is all about what happened to my toe. Okay. In the story, ended up giving the toe bone to a girl as like a sort of love tribute. And and I can honestly say hand in heart that That's I've never not given any body parts to anybody <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. that I can remember. So out of all of the pieces that you've written so far, maybe in your collection, do you have a favourite? Once I've written them, they feel as though someone else has written them. Mm. So I say this unsmugly. I, mm. I love them as stories almost divorced from me. I, I sometimes can't believe that I had anything to do with them. So mm. if I say that I love my stories, this really isn't meant to sound big-headed at all. Yeah. There's a story called Even Dead, I'm Neurotic. I think that was probably the first story that I wrote where I realized I was better than I had previously thought. It has a partner story as well, also in the collection, called Lottie's Husband, Out of His Skin. The common character, this character who pops up in both stories, also appears in a third story in the collection. So he, he probably ought to have a book to himself. But Sounds like it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day. Do you know which one of those stories came first? I honestly can't remember whether it was Lottie's Husband, which I wrote for the Spread the Word competition, or whether it was Even Dead, I'm Neurotic. And what confuses it is that one of them is definitely the prequel to the other one, chronologically. Um, I haven't got a clue now. I'm confused. You've slept since then, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, I think we'll take a pause there. We'll, We'll listen to your reading of Lottie's Husband, Out of His Skin. Lottie's Husband, Out of His Skin, by Nick Black. I was tossed twenty, thirty feet into the air, without, I noticed, my body coming with me. My mortal remains, below, stood a second or two, then dropped like a pile of kicked-over books. Mourners rushed over, no trace of decorum, blocking my view from above. Where I hang suspended, high above the plot where, moments ago, I'd been officiating the funeral of Saul Rubenstein. Now, I've never felt entirely comfortable around Rubenstein. Rubenstein, whose shadow only darkened my shawl on high holidays, and only then to pass this business card around, not that this is so rare. Rubenstein, who'd shoot me looks that could slice salmon 
Faven glanced at his wife, his second, a convert half his age, if that. Rubenstein, who shuffled like a thief in his oversized shoes whenever I went with Lottie to buy a nice dress in his shop. But I'd thought burying him, at least, would be easy. It had started fine. In the prayer hall, tears, wailing, everything good. Things done the way they are always done. It's not the best part of being a rabbi, but I'm told I give a good funeral. They're queuing up to be buried by you, Lottie would tease. Because you sound like Paul Robeson, if he came from Manchester. Or even, and she'd bump her eyebrows up toward the ceiling, once, twice, until I poked her to be more reverent. After the service, we went out to the graveside, the less steady attendees catching a ride on the back of the groundsman's buggy. It rattled off between the gravestones, passengers clutching each other, risking death and mutilation. Nevertheless, a beautiful day, rows of wet marble sparkling in the sunshine. There must have been rain in the night. A few minutes to get to the plot, then wait for the stragglers. This place is always expanding, but people won't stop dying. I'm glad we didn't get lost, I said to the widow. It wouldn't have been the first time. She smiled at me and wouldn't look away, and I didn't want to be rude. So there we were, staring at each other, until finally she said, You want to carry a sat-nav round with you, in her Irish accent, and laughed. It's actually not such a bad idea. Everyone finally gathered. I was just about to say some words. My head dipped, the crumbling mouth of the grave in the corner of my vision, when suddenly I hear five loud raps against wood. And that's when I seemingly leapt out of my skin. I don't like this. I don't like this, I cry. No poor ropes and now. Nobody looks up. Can they not hear me or see me? I'm not a small man. Is this six-foot-three rabbi hovering in the air a thing to ignore? I flap, I flail, to no avail. Looking down at the mourners, crowded around my body, I wonder, can they not hear souls banging either? Who knows what sort of mood he must be in, almost choking to death on a fish supper, then waking up to find he's being buried alive. And I think I'm having a bad day. My mind, as it's wont to do, begins to fret. My late wife Lottie, may her memory be a blessing, I drove crazy from the first day we met with my thoughts and doubts. What if we've been wrong all these centuries, I'd ask, four in the morning. You think Jesus will forgive us? I know, another time, the Lord gave us free will, so we must actively choose the right paths, but couldn't he at least have given us a nicer nature with it? For four hours in his fame. That one got me banned from drinking coffee after 7pm. Our daughter Simone was even worse, all big black eyes and bad nerves from birth. Her night terrors would have her pour the paper off her bedroom wall, that when we could wean her out of our bed and into her own. We'd talk to her. What are you so frightened of, darling? You're such a good girl, we love you till our hearts burst. Not a good thing to say, it turns out. I'd watch the E.T. with her, over and over. She loved that one. We must have worn the videotape thin and Lottie would radiate with amusement to see how it wet my face every time. Lottie, said Simone, had an overactive imagination. Something should outgrow. Don't you worry, she'd whisper. 
stroking hair off Simone's forehead. Don't you worry about her, she'd whisper, doing the same with me hours later. Now Simone lives in Tel Aviv and takes medication against panic attacks. She shouldn't know the morning Saul and I are having. She thinks she has anything to panic about. Of course, she should never know such a thing, my little girl. Her husband, Yoshi Mugenstein, is a giant. Even I, 6'3", have my face pressed into a wall of chest when he insists on embracing. Let him be, Lottie would say when I'd complain. He's a warm man and he makes her feel safe. Reading my mind most of the time. I wish he were here now, the giant Yoshi, to reach up and pluck me from the sky. I wish Lottie were even more so. A handsome young man, seeing the waving round arms, and poor Mrs. Rubenstein, the young widow, is sprinting from his service to ours, leaping over headstones, skullcap clutched to his head with his right hand so it doesn't fly off. The huddle around my body breaks to let him in. I hope he's a doctor, and not just nosy. I'm still here, turning somersaults, though I think I'm managing to slow down, thank God. I was only trying to reach down and wave for attention. The spinnings made me dizzy like a hamster wheel, round and round. Oh, I go vault, I hope it stops entirely soon. This reminds me of the night Lottie and I tried to help Simone with her P.E. phobia. <laughs> Never a small-boned creature. She'd come home from primary school sobbing, drained, her face like putty. Please write me a note that I never have to do P.E. again. So Lottie and I, and we weren't young parents, Simone was a late and unexpected blessing, like with Abraham and Sarah. We dragged all the furniture in the living room to one side, and we were all three of us practicing forward rolls on the carpet, my legs and feet crashing into the side tables, Lottie toppling sideways, bottom overhead. Oh, we ached in her afterwards, but for the laughter it was worth every bruise. What the congregation would have thought to see us rolling about. We could probably have sold tickets. The young grave hurdler is performing CPR on me, some of the mourners are getting restless. They see enough medical drums on television. Stray members begin to drift off. My gaze falls upon a girl in her forties on the edge of the party. Lottie always complained that I had an eye for the ladies, and I cannot, floating above holy ground, deny this girl's a beauty, her eyes under her hat, huge and dark like prunes soaking in water. A healthy figure too, but I'm not dwelling on that. I'm noticing that, hand raised against the sun, she's got her back to everyone else and is looking around. Can she see me? Did she spot a foot dangling down, black polished shoes shining in the sun? Someone calls and she turns. She's walking towards an older couple, and the three of them are striding away to the car park. So maybe not. Then suddenly she stops and turns again, touches the older woman's arm. What's she pointing at? Quieter from up here, but tap, tap, tap. He's behind you, I want to shout. Could I sound more like a pantomime? Tap, tap, a couple more. I turn, and in the far trees, I see a tiny woodpecker. I'm floating in the air, a blimp, because of a fishtinkener woodpecker. If I wasn't probably already dead, I'd die of shame. A short time later, and Mrs. Rubenstein's hugging the young man. Men are hugging him. They're queuing up now to hug him, to pat his shoulders, 
Banknotes are being stuffed in his top pocket to his protests. All the while, I'm drifting down, slow as tree fluff airborne on a hot summer's day. My face is a few feet below me, the eyes still closed, but there's colour in my cheeks, egg yolk in my beard. Why didn't I notice that before leaving home? Not too decrepit looking, from a certain distance. Could you still take a dance with me, Lottie? Before I even get there, my old dry lips start to part in a smile. Moving on to your collection now, where did the title Positive and Negative come from? The title comes from the very first piece in there that I wrote a few years ago for ad hoc fiction, mm -hmm. who at the time were running a weekly contest. They would give you a word and you had to write, I think it was 50 words. It was an incredibly short flash yeah. that you had to write. I was the very first winner of this weekly contest with a story called Positive and Negative, which features a Duracell battery. Not that long ago, they retweeted that original story as a sort of, you know, reminder of what they'd done in the past sort of thing, you know, sort mm. of flashback with a great graphic of a positive and negative sign looking like a battery. It was around that time that I'd been thinking of whether anyone might accept a collection of my stories. So I wrote to them. They didn't have a submission link on their mm. website, but I thought that I could possibly capitalize on being their first winner. I thought, yeah. I thought it was quite marketable. I asked if they might be interested and they wrote back and said, yeah, sure, send us what you've got. I quite like it actually as a title anyway, because a lot of my stories are both positive and negative. I'd like combining poignant or melancholy with humor. So did Ad Hoc have much input with the compilation of the collection? They asked if I had a theme and then I put together the running order. They were happy with it and seemed to flow. No, I mean, in, in the nicest sense, they sort of got out of the way in terms of the content. They didn't ask me to remove anything or change anything. Mm. My collection's slightly longer than mm. most of the flash collections they do. So um, I'm grateful that they didn't ask me to cut anything out. John at Ad Hoc did the cover, which I'm really grateful for because I've had mm. lots of nice feedback about what a strong visual it is. And so where can listeners purchase copies of Positive and Negative? It's available on the Ad Hoc Fiction website, so they sell it directly. Otherwise, it's also on Amazon, co.uk, .com, yeah. .ca, etc. Yeah. I think we'll take another pause to listen to your second piece, I Am What I Am Now. But before we do, could you give us some background on it? I was teaching computer classes in a library at the time that was just few hundred yards away from one of the campuses of Middlesex University and they were hosting a literary festival and there happened to be a flash fiction contest one lunchtime so I went along in my lunch hour and you had to write a story based on a pop song I for some reason wrote something based on Shirley Bassey I am what I am I haven't got a clue why I'm not a Shirley Bassey fan particularly anyway I did write a piece for that and I wanted it to be sort of flamboyant, feather boa, you know, twirling kind of story. And I came up with this story. And they had actors reading out everybody's contribution. And then everyone in the room put up their hands. 
for which story they liked the most. But no one knew who had written the stories, and mine finished, and, and I won. And wow. 50 pounds in cold, hard cash was thrust into my hand, which is, uh, I think, probably the first time I ever got paid for my writing, and uh, possibly the last time I ever got paid for my writing. But um, it was a very happy lunchtime. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very happy lunchtime, isn't it? So, and, then, and then back to work? Yeah, back to work. Okay, so we'll, we'll take a listen to that story then. This is I Am What I Am. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. First editing nature's mistype with the white out of mum's makeup. Then tonsorial experiments, sartorial over elegance. A wiggle added to walk and talk that caught people's breaths like burrs on a bush. As the millennium burnt itself out, and we tiny competitive stars strove to flare with light, cosmetics moved from powders and grease smears to the sharp-tongued touch of the medical and surgical, kissing my skin, my body opening up. I admire your guts, gasped a client, mouth inches away from them. What imagination, sighed another, a tremble. Credit my clever accountants, I thought. But the value of investments can go up as well as down. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. Gravity tugged. Cells collapsed. So in came the implants, the mechanics, the bionics. I am now in the tiresome process of leaving physical form entirely. Each day, my plastic lungs exhale my voice into microphones, while cameras capture, catch what they can. Lasers nib my profile. All of these files will eventually corrupt, disintegrate. Bits and bytes of me will drift through the networks, bright plankton and black oceans. I'll be everywhere. I can't wait. Welcome back. Thanks for the reading, Nick. I noticed from the discussion you had earlier that there are certain points in your kind of writing career where you've won competitions. And I just wonder whether that's something you still pursue or is that just a highlight? Because you did mention at one point that you don't really write competitions yeah. or sorry you'll take part in competitions yeah i i realize i um may sound a little disingenuous there i mean i have entered a few competitions over the years and i've listed for a few and i've won a few i haven't really won any big competitions at all right. um weekly contests yeah but not mm -hmm. big competitions and it it's certainly nice for your confidence yeah that some sort of response particularly when it's a public vote um as the ad hoc weekly contests were but generally speaking for for all that i've been saying i don't really enter that many most of the stories that i write i would rather get to a lit mag and particularly an online one i want people to read it as quickly as possible although mm. often it takes months if not you know over a year sometimes i just want to, my stories to be read to be honest yeah to be seen. I mean, now I've got a book, of course, I want people to buy my book. I think the, the idea of writing for competition, it's certainly a good spur. And I think it's good for your profile, as it were, if you can be listed or, or when. What I don't want to end up doing, and what I would sort of deter anyone from doing, is 
solely writing for competitions because I, th I think it can warp how you write and what you're writing. If you're writing to win a competition, yeah. you're going to, you're going to end up writing formulaically, possibly. You know, seeing what other stories have won, rather than necessarily right. writing what you need to write. If that doesn't sound pretentious, you know, a lot of competition winners obviously would want to appeal to a wide readership. Wider audience, right. I think you can lose your own flavour. I mean, some of my favourite stories of the ones that I've written myself aren't necessarily that popular with anyone else, but I still think they're what I set out to write. And, mm. and hopefully, how many people do like them will like them a lot. I don't think those are the sorts of stories, though, that would ever win or even get listed for a competition, probably. I could be wrong. I don't know. It's finding the right competition, maybe. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So, okay, moving on to other writers then. Is there a piece of flash fiction by somebody else that would be good to steer listeners to read? One that's stayed with me for a few years now is called April 5, 1991 by Sarah Littman, who's an American writer. It's set in the basement of a house where a lot of the sort of teenagers of the town hang out. It's just an incredibly vivid piece. It's almost written in emotional high definition. It's not just a piece that you can see, but it's one that you feel. So this is exactly what I was babbling on about before. Some pieces you might write for a competition, other pieces you just want to or need to write. And this feels like a, like a story that, that matters. It's gritty. It's, it's emotionally true. It's, uncomfortable mm. um that's great i did like it so what are you currently reading i tend to be reading several books at the same time i'm reading the love letters of virginia wolf and vita sack for west which i've been reading on and off for getting on for a year now um because mm -hmm. i don't want to rush through it i am saving that i'm also reading which quite coincidentally i didn't realize when, when i got it is written by Vita Sackville West's grandson, Life Between the Tides, um, by Adam Nicholson. He builds a rock pool and is observing all, all the sort of aquatic life in there. But it's also about the fluidity of life, of consciousness. It, it's, it's a sort of nature book, but it's more mm. philosophical. Um, it's not the sort of thing, I'm not a seasidey person, mm. I'm not particularly an outdoorsy person. Um, so it's not the sort of thing that I probably would have ever given any thought to or mm. shown any interest in, but I very much like him as a writer. His personality just draws me in. So mm. and, yeah, I'll just listen to him talk about anything really. So do you have any little snippets of advice for anybody that's new to flash fiction writing? This is also advice for myself quite honestly, okay. that I've been telling myself this weekend. Remember that this isn't a popularity contest. It's very easy, particularly if you're on social media, to try measuring the worth of your writing or yourself as a writer by you know, how many likes you get or mm. how many retweets. And that really isn't what it's about and it isn't what it should be about. Write what you want to write and what you want to read. Once it's out in the world, hopefully it will find people who, who like it. And it doesn't matter how many that is. 
and you're never going to know probably how many that is. So don't drive yourself crazy with that. Brackets, says Nick, talking to himself. Brackets. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so there's a, there is a little story behind why I asked you to take part in the first podcast. And that's because in 2017, I decided to put together a print publication from a collection of Flash. I'm sure you remember that I put out a call for submissions and with a theme of one, and you submitted. And you actually submitted the day before I opened. I was so anxious about the fact that I wasn't going to receive any submissions <laughs> that, that when I received that, I was over the moon and I read it. I thought, this is brilliant. A really short, simple flash. Um, and it was called Yard Sale. That's right. Yeah. If you could read that, because it's very short, isn't it? It's two lines. Two lines. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So, Yard Sale. Vern sat in his yard with his life in a box at his feet and a sign. Best offer accepted, or nearest offer. He had one offer for the box, so long as it was emptied first. Now, I really, really, really appreciate taking the time today, Nick. Um, it's been a really, really good, interesting conversation. I've loved it. Thank you. Um, I wish you the best of luck with the publication, which thanks. is positive and negative available from Ad Hoc Fiction. Thank you so much, and thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. I've added links to any website or publication that Nick referenced during our conversation to the show notes, including where to purchase Nick's collection. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. To find out more about Ellipsis Scene, you can visit our website, ellipsisscene.com.